If you like this podcast and would like to support us, please rate, comment, and subscribe. And also, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. And now it's time to get a unique slant on current events from your favorite half-Asian couple. Get ready to know what's happening in the world today with your host, Shane and Nico. We are here uh, with our next episode of the What's Happening podcast, number 25. Uh, yes. I'm Shane. I'm Nico. And we are very happy to have uh, Thomas Edlam with us today. Um, how are you doing today? Doing great. Uh, you know, we just had a little technical snafu trying to get on on the air. And the funny thing is, uh, we, the, the episode's about William Miller Greg. He was a self-described techno klutz. He would have me fix his technology. That's how bad he was at technology. But he was great at writing. So there we go. Well, at least he had something there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, for you, Tom, I know you're a writer. Um, I know that you are uh, published at Libertarian Institute. And I heard you first on the Scott Horton show. Right. You know, talking about uh, the new book uh, about William Norman Gray. And it's basically... It's pretty much just a collection of his writings, correct? Yeah, it's it's a collection of his writings. Here's, here's a copy of the uh, the book uh, I wrote the uh, the foreword. It's mostly a collection of what he selected as his best writings from about 2001 to 2013. He put the project in the hands of a friend, Darren Williams, uh, who you know he took a couple years to you know have a family and. And then when Will died unexpectedly, uh, there was a new urgency to get this book published. So uh, Darren gave me a call and said, hey, would you write an, an introduction to the book? And would you give it a pass as an editor? So I did. And then when, uh, you know, when we were kind of done with our end of things, we said, mm, you know, we should probably, we, we had to ask the family anyway. And I said, you know, the, Will was one of the founders of the Libertarian Institute. Maybe we should give them a chance to, to publish it. So we, we consulted with uh, Will's oldest son, William Wallace Craig, and he said, "No, let's let's do it with the Libertarian Institute." So so we got Scott on board, and and the result is is this great uh, this great book. And the thing I like about it, just as a personal thing, uh, the cover art is by Scott Alberts, who was uh, with Will and I both on the staff of the New American in the 1990s. And Scott and Will and I collaborated in the same way with Will's previous book, uh, Liberty and Eclipse. So in Liberty Eclipse, in Liberty and Eclipse, Will wrote the book. I wrote the foreword, and Scott did the cover art. So one last collaboration between the, the three three friends. It was great. Well, so you you knew him for quite a long time, right? Yeah, when I met him in 1993, he was interviewing basically for a staff job at the New American Magazine in Appleton, Wisconsin. I'd been on the staff a couple of years. I moved out from the Boston area to uh, to Appleton in 1989, and he, he'd written a couple of really good pieces for the New American as a freelancer, but they were interviewing him to see if he would stay on as a full timer, and 
there was a meeting in the CEO's office, he had his core office upstairs, and I'm walking up the, the stairs, and one of the other guys in the office, I forget who, who, who's, who it was, said, this guy is thesaurus rex. You know, he has, he has this incredible vocabulary. Now, he's probably, I don't know, early 30s at the time, so, but he, he just, he had this huge vocabulary, he used it perfectly, and he didn't use it We've all run into those people in high school and college that use big words to impress people, uh, but he didn't do that. He was gracious when we didn't understand what he was talking about, and uh, he the uh, he just used the best word in in his mind, and it was it was wonderful. Uh, but that's I I knew him from 1993 on until until his death. Hmm. So it was a it was a pretty good long friendship. What sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's funny when I did the Scott Horton show. Scott was saying, "Oh, you know," and he was, you know, Tom was Will's protege, and I suppose in a way, yes. And then he said that he's Will's best friend, and I'm thinking, I don't know. I mean, I was a good friend of his, but he he had so many good friends. Uh, so I I don't know if I want to say I was his best friend, but uh, certainly uh, he was one of my great friends, and and vice versa because we were just, you know. If, when people got to know Will Gray, it was one of those things where uh, you would call, like when I left Appleton, I just left the staff of the New American in 2000, and I moved back to Boston. I wanted to get back to my extended family. And uh, I would call him on occasion. And what I found is that dozens or maybe even hundreds of other people would just call him to you know, receive his wisdom and, and humor. I mean, he was so hilarious and, and he was so spontaneous too. Let me give you one example. Um, one time when uh, we had offices right next to each other from 1993 all the way up till uh, I left the staff in 2000. And uh, one of the bands I kind of liked in, in the 90s was In Excess. And it's an Australian band and, and the lead singer had died. And I went into Will's office and I said, Hey Will, you know the lead singer to Inexcess had died. Has died, and did you hear that he died of? This was the rumor at the time, autoerotic asphyxiation. Now he hadn't heard this, and his his instant reply was, "That's the second most embarrassing thing that can happen to a man." <laughs> what about the, what was the first according to? That him? was what I said, and <laughs> he thought this all through to the beginning. He said, "Almost dying of autoerotic asphyxiation." And, I, and of course, I had to look. I didn't even. You know, I was, how old was I? I was probably late twenties. I didn't know what that was, but he knew. He knew everything. You know, he like he knew what it was. He thought the whole sequence through. Oh, I'm going to say this. He's going to say what was the most embarrassing thing, and then I'm going to say, I, you know, that that was the kind of guy he was. He could think everything through to its conclusion, and you know, and and be hilarious about it. Uh, he had all of the, everyone who knows Will had all of these rigisms and many of them never made it to print. You know, I, my, my own daughters are, you know, they, they, they always wonder why does, why does my dad always say when I disagree with them, I ask them, why do you hate America? And it was because Will had said, Oh, whenever someone disagrees with Sean Hannity on the Hannity show, he says, why do you hate America? And I just, I just started cracking up because it was almost that way. I mean, at the time I was listening to Hannity and, and, and it almost was that way. So we, there were so many little things that he, he did. Uh, but, it, you know, from the standpoint as a writer, he was, he was a great uh, libertarian writer. He started off as a 
pretty traditional, I guess, conservative uh, constitutionalist. Uh, but in the end, he became uh, a really an anarcho-capitalist. Uh, you know, he 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 wasn't. In a, there are certain anarcho-capitalists, a minority, who will you know, oh, you're a statist if you disagree with one little thing. Will was gracious about about everything, you know, and I I never became a full anarcho-capitalist. I would still call myself, I guess, a classical liberal, and you know, he would say. Shoot for anarchy, and you'll hit minarchy. You, you know, the, the, just little things like that. He was he was just a, a wonderful guy, and and just just this brilliant writer. He had all of these little grigisms in his book as well. It was there were all these little personal stories. So that's the answer to your question. All right, we're gonna take a few moments to talk about our sponsor, Infinite CBD. Infinite CBD has some of the cleanest CBD available. CBD is derived from cannabis, but without the THC, meaning there's no psychoactive reaction in the body, only the health benefits. I personally love the Asteroid CBD gummies because they work fast and they taste great. I've found that using Infinite CBD reduces my anxiety and stress levels and even helps me sleep better. I personally use the freezing topical point cream on my neck and back because I'm tall and I have tall people problems and my neck and back hurts pretty much every single day. So I use it to calm the pain and it works great. So yeah, really appreciate it, Infinite CBD. Now, if you want to have any of these products, make sure you use our promo code HAPA10, H-A-P-A and the number 10 to get 10% off your order. Again, go to infinitecbd.com and use promo code Hoppa 10 for 10% off your order. All right, let's get back into the show. Was there um, any any particular, I guess, uh, event that you know in, in his life that kind of pushed him towards that realm of anarcho-capitalism or, or do you not know about that? Well, I, I, I think it was the, while, we, while he was on the staff of the New American in the 90s, I mean, it was the New American, had, it was the John Birch Society magazine, so it was a very traditional conservative magazine. And he uh, and I, both in the 90s, with Bill Clinton fighting the wars in the Balkans and Justin Raimondo creating this great website called anywar.com uh, and, and Lou Rockwell creating his own great website, uh, lourockwell.com, later lrc.com. We started you know, reading that and, and, and becoming very strongly anti-war. And war will create this stream of anti-war articles as well as on other issues. And I think we were influenced by, by both Justin Raimondo and by Lou Rockwell uh, in, in a big way. So I, I think that was the tipping point. But uh, he, was, he was always open to those, uh, those ideas. It wasn't, it wasn't like they, you know, they captured him and, and turned him into this anarcho-capitalist. He, he was always open to the idea of, gee, if we can have less government and that's good. If we could have no government, that's better. I mean, that was that was his view, and so why not? And I, I suppose I'm open to that too. If if, if it can be shown to me that uh, you know we can have no government, I, I would be for it. I mean, Bob Murphy almost got me. Uh, I read his book uh, Chaos Theory. That's what it was, and uh, it, you know it was about uh, some of the tougher questions with regard to anarchy versus a you know, minarchist or, or classical liberal society. And I, I think he made some intelligent, uh, you know, plausible points. 
didn't quite get me, but you know, maybe his next book. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, he had that Contra Krugman book that just came out recently, but that's mainly about, you know, debunking Krugman and all that. So I don't know if yeah. he's making that particular, you know, anarchy points or whatever, but yeah. Right. I mean, I love that podcast. I have listened to it a few, uh, a few weeks, but uh, obviously I left, you know, Bob Murphy and I listened, you know, I listened to the, Tom Woods and you know they're both great. So, um, uh, but but I, I thought um, uh, Bob Murphy they he's a reason he sounds reasonable as as a podcaster as well as in print. I think his his books are good. Personal opinion. Yeah, with kind of with with regards to like anarchism and menarchism and all that, there's a lot of those, especially. And I'm sure I'm sure you've seen it too, where you know in, in the libertarian I guess or liberty movement really. There's just a whole bunch of factions, you know, we see it on Twitter all the time, you know, there's yeah. people who are just, you know, collapsitarian, they just want to collapse everything to start over, do it all over again. But it's just like, you know, with the snap of the fingers, it's, you know, but then when you think about it pragmatically, you're just thinking, well, I mean, is it really going to happen right now? You know, so you're going to have to dwindle, I think, in terms of how that's going to go, you know, like you were saying, you know, I would like no government, perfect, you know, that'd be great, you know, no yeah. government at all, it'd be awesome. But you know, and I know, and I know there's some people too who want that, but they kind of want to go through it with the, um, you know, actually going into the government, working, I guess, like you know, inside out type of thing, you know. Right. Um, so in terms of with all that, uh, you know, do you do you think that, I maybe mean, not in our lifetime because I, I don't see it happening at least in our lifetimes or all that, but do you think we'll ever get back to that class? I mean, even just a classical liberal type of government because I mean I know for sure we're not really in that realm now we're not and I'm I'm not sure that we will I if we do I, I think it would be probably by better tying taxation to representation and by that I mean sort of getting rid of the the money lobby and and I don't mean the money lobby that that some of the Democrats talk about where uh, you have campaign contributions. I, I mean, the state is the biggest lobbyist. Yeah, you know, my my dad was a civil engineer for the state of Massachusetts, and it was you know he he was pretty open about I'm voting my self interest, and you know he would he was for Michael Dukakis when he was governor of Massachusetts, but against him when he was the president because he was a generous paymaster as as a governor, but you know he didn't want him as president, and and I, I think. People have that tendency to vote their pocketbook. Uh, so, if those who pay the taxes get the vote, and those who take the taxes don't get the vote, I think that you could see a return to, to classical liberalism. Uh, but I don't know. We'll see. I, it, it would be it would t obviously that would take constitutional changes. That would take a whole bunch of, uh, and that that wouldn't by itself solve everything either. Yeah. I don't know. It's um. You know, it's interesting. You see some of these other societies come up, uh, countries like Estonia, from absolute poverty to now they're advanced nations. Mm -hmm. And and there's going to be, you know, very soon will be the first African advanced uh, economy as well, probably the Maldives. Uh, you know, they will have some examples for us to return, I think, at some point too. Not, it's But you're right. It's not going to happen all at once. It's going to be... Uh, it's going to take some time, but it may, may be one of those things like like Ron Paul described with the, the collapse of the Berlin Wall. It may take decades, 
but then it'll be fairly sudden when it happens because everyone's like, oh, gee, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, I think if, uh, if if you look at, for instance, Social Security, there, there's there's financial pressure to to solve the Social Security Medicare uh, problem in the United States. And we have ample ex examples from abroad of privatized systems that are that are working better than ours. Not just Chile, but uh, the Singapore system where, you know, you have, you have this forced savings. And Australia has uh, superannuation. They, they have kind of a hybrid system. They have a government and a, and a private. But, you know, where, especially as longevity increases and the costs of a pay-go system like Social Security goes on, it gets longer and longer and longer. It becomes more less and less viable. I, I think people are going to say, hmm, you know, maybe we could have to go to a private system because the government system isn't going to be financially viable. And, and, and you'll have this cascading effect on Social Security and other issues. So I'm getting a far afield from Will Gregg, so I'm going to uh, try to bring it back to, back to him and his book, which every – Great libertarian, and, and if you even if you're not a libertarian, you should read because it's it's hilarious. It'll infuriate you. It, you'll want to weep at some parts, uh, and and of course some of the the stories like the Christopher Tapp story that Scott Horton had mentioned. Uh, here's here's a case of a guy who was innocent, who was forced to plead guilty, and then they found the guilty guy. Uh, and and Will was right on the, on the case right from the beginning, uh, and and some of those stories are in here. Uh, Will was uh, he, he it, it sort of I don't know it sort of bothered me but at the same time I realized it was an important issue that he focused so much on police abuse after about 2010 uh, because I, I thought gee you know he has so much to offer on so many issues and uh, the, the police issue is a, is a huge issue uh, there there are over a thousand, or I think it's over 1,200 people that are killed every year by police in the United States uh, versus half a dozen or less in Germany uh, or Britain. You know, the, the, the multiples, even if you include population difference, are several dozen times. So the police abuse is, is a serious issue in the United States. But uh, I, I just wanted the range of issues and views of, of, of Will, and this book gives it. it, it it starts with an essay on 9-11 that he wrote a couple days after 9-11, and it goes all the way up till about 2013. And most of the essays are, are pretty timeless. Uh, there's one or two that are, you know, Christopher Tapp's story that are, you know, they're, they're about individuals, but they also relate to principles. And they also, after the fact, show that, gee, the cat was right uh, once again uh, about things. Well, one of the things that you mentioned to us before uh, was that uh, he, he's a hoppa. And so we were wondering, because, you know, like, like we were saying when we were talking in, uh, you know, an email and all that, like, we don't really know a whole lot about him. So knowing, like, learning that he was mm -hmm. a hoppa, was like, oh, wow, that's really cool. So what what mix of Asian was he or Pacific Islander? Well, Will, went, you know, he was adopted by, Greg is a German name. So, you know, he used right. to joke that my family is German, except during World War Two, they were Swiss, uh, but they, <coughs> excuse me, um, you know, they lived in the United States, so they had to sort of hide their German heritage. Uh, but he was an adopt, he was adopted, and his whole life he grew up thinking he was half Irish and half Mexican. He used to joke, "Don't get me mad and don't get me drunk." Uh, but as it turns out, he he was neither. He he, uh, uh, he 
he tracked down his birth mother and, and a couple years before he died and found out that his, uh, his father was uh, a Pacific Islander, uh, some sort of Polynesian. Uh, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was Hawaiian or, 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 you know, further into the Pacific, but, you know, he, he uh, yeah, he's, he's half. I, I have thought that that was the reason why he wanted to do the interview because, you know, he, he is half Asian, you know, so. Oh, it's, it's great. That, that's pretty cool. Um, you know, cause like you were saying, he, like his whole life, you know, he was adopted and thinking he was one and then he learned, Oh no, I'm a complete. So do you think like, you know, cause it was kind of late in his life. Like you were saying, it was about two years before he had passed. Um, did it kind of like change his mindset after learning about all that stuff? Like everything he knew before or he thought he knew. And then after learning all that, th like what happened in terms of like learning all that? I don't think so. I mean, you know, he, I think like a lot of adopted children, you know, they're hesitant to go after their birth parents because they don't want to see it as a slight to their adopted parents, and especially if they are deeply respectful to their adoptive parents. And Will never had anything negative to say about his parents. He loved his parents. And I'm sure it it it's a lot for him to say, you know, I, I still would like to know. And he he did. He, go and find out and I don't know if it changed his worldview very much. It, it, there were a lot of a lot fewer Irish and Mexican jokes from him, but I, I don't think it changed his view that much. It's it was kind of funny. I mean, having him on staff, I mean when I was when I was hired by the, the Birch Society now and actually in Belmont, Massachusetts, you know, my first supervisor was 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 African American. But I was told, you know, before I got hired that oh this is possibly a racist organization and when i hired him, my boss was this i said oh it's probably not and it, it it wasn't and will also you know he he defied that that narrative too because he was out there speaking for the Birch society quite a bit and uh you know as a result uh, he brought a lot of people into the, the magazine and to the organization in fact the New American Magazine's circulation had been pretty steady at about 15,000 in the early 1990s. And when they hired him, within a couple of years, the circulation tripled. And there were a lot of special issues that just sold several hundred thousand copies, one of them about a million, or half a million rather. And it was, it was because of his writing and his research, because he not only was great at turning a phrase, but he was also a great researcher. And he knew when he had an issue and he would, he would craft his articles with a theory and an example, and then another example, and then another example, and, and have the turn of phrase in the piece. I learned a lot as a writer from him. I, I was a terrible writer. I, when I wrote my first piece for the New American Magazine back in 1987, I was, that's when I got hired. The managing editor said to the editor, don't ever get another piece from this guy. He's terrible. And he was right. He was right. But I became a good writer later in part because of Will. And I, I just have a lot to be grateful for, for having known him. All right. We're going to take a few moments to talk about a big supporter of our show, Libertarian Country, for all of your political apparel needs. 
That's libertariancountry.com, and they have everything liberty-related on t-shirts, sweatshirts, tank tops, long-sleeve shirts, baby clothes, bumper stickers, hats. They have so many different options now. They even sell books. That's right. So if you use our promo code HAPA, H-A-P-A, and you'll get 10% off your order. Again, HAPA. So don't forget to go to libertariancountry.com and use our promo code HAPA. All right, let's get back into the show. So uh, in terms of his writing, because I mean, you said you just, that you learned a lot from him, you know, in his writing and all that. Um, like, what would you kind of describe his writing style would be like, what's the William Norman Grigg writing style to you? Pugilistic. He was a fighter. He, he, would, he would come at you with uh, hammer and tong, but also with humor. It, he, I, I, I give this one example in the forward to the book. And I, I love it because it was just perfect. Well, we had this inside uh, in-house newsletter that we circulated among the staff of the New American magazine. And the New American was attached to the Versus Society. It was about half and half. Half was, were in Appleton, and then we had sales staff, or we called field staff, out in, all across the country. And the newsletter would go into the weekly package to all of these guys out in, in the hinterlands. And the research department would put it together. I was the head of research, and Will was sort of attached to research, even though he wasn't one of my employees. He wrote most of the stuff. And one time he wrote about a little piece about the Unabomber being apprehended. He was the eco-terrorist. And he said that the, the, eco, the Unabomber had been protesting about biodiversity while himself living his own personal biodiversity by living in a yurt made of his own offal. And of course, I, at the time, I didn't know what a yurt was. And I don't know what Wolfel was, but I kind of knew where he was getting at, you know, because he, the Unabomber was well known. He was very dirty. He was apprehended. So I just laughed. And then I went to the dictionary, looked up the words. I laughed again harder. I mean, he was just that kind of, a, he was just so funny while at the same time making a larger point. And that's why whenever the field staff came in for some conference or whatever, they always went down into the basement. We were in the basement. And to meet Will Gray. That was their first stop, always, because they wanted to see who is this brilliant guy writing this hilarious stuff. And, and a lot of the humor never made it into, into press. I mean, some of the stuff did, but most of it got excised out because we, the New American was going for closer to straight reporting than all of the humor that he was able to, to do. And this, this piece, this, this book, has him unedited so he's got a lot of that kind of humor in it it's definitely worth reading can i sell it more <laughs> i don't make any money off of it my my fee for the uh uh the the forward was to get three copies of the book one that i could lend and one that i could uh sell to another friend so i could buy another copy to another friend that's that's that was my fee because i i just uh, i just want this book to be circulated and uh you know, I'm not even promoting my own book, which I should be. I, Will's book actually, here's my book, uh, A Rogue Sedition, includes a story about uh, how I got thrown off of a federal mafia drug trial hmm. in, um, in Boston in 2007. I think it was eight, but, uh, 2008. But 
my book's great, and you should buy my book too. But if you buy one book, buy one. That really, that's what it comes down to because it's it's that good. Well, yeah, you're you're selling it pretty well. Um, you know, I mean, you, every time you show it up, it's like, oh, hell, another sale, another sale. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, yeah. Ours is supposed to get here tomorrow, I think. Yeah, we are supposed. To, yeah, so we have our um, our copy coming in pretty soon. Um, good. So, now I'm excited to read it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, like I was saying earlier, for for us who don't, or for even people who who are listening and watching who don't really know a whole lot about him, what would you say would be like an introduction in terms of you know like a piece of his that you'd be like you have this is the quintessential William Norman Gregg piece you have to read this one. Oh, I don't know. There were so many. There were just. I, they, I, there isn't one that stands out because they were, they, they were just all so good. I, 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 let me just peruse through the book here because uh, it was, it was a tough, and that's uh, Stalinist White House. How white, you know, how white he bought, bought Bulger bought Boston was really good too because he, he talked about uh, the how the mafia is, is not as bad. As the police, it, it, he just was, he was great at, at, um, at, at I, the Whitey Bulger one was really good. I, I, I like that. How, how uh, Whitey Bulger bought Boston and how they, we have a local talk show host here, Howie Carr is great on a lot of issues. And he's done a lot of reporting about the Whitey Bulger case, but Will Grigg just encapsulated it and, and talked about how, the difference between Whitey Bulger and the FBI is that when Whitey Bulger was going after this and put a hit on Howie Carr, the local talk show host and Boston Herald reporter, the assassin had him in his gun sights, in his front doorstep. And his little girl was there with him, and he didn't fire. And he said, contrast that with the FBI at Ruby Ridge in Idaho with Randy Weaver and his wife. And there, the wife was holding a baby, and bam, Lori, uh, uh, Horiuchi, well, I forget his, what, first, what his first name was, but the FBI sniper shoots her dead. So, and of course, it's done usually with his typical turn of phrase and, and, and some witticisms in there. I mean, obviously, you can't be funny about everything. Certainly, murder is not funny. Uh, but he's, he's, he's great at those kind of contrasts by, by just looking at, okay, here's one thing, here's another thing. Which one of these two don't, don't match? And it was just... It was, just, it was a pleasure to know him personally because he was so funny and so kind and, and engaging. And that, I think that was part of the reason why he didn't write as much the last, I don't know, seven or eight, ten years, because everyone was calling up, calling him up saying, hey, how's it going? Give us some wisdom. And it would just take so much of his time. He'd be on the phone all the time. So I he he actually – talked to me a lot last the last maybe two years and I think that was part of it he was just trying to get away from the phone he would still 
have conversations with me over Facebook private messaging and, and, and other ways, but the the live telephone conversations were much fewer. And I think it's because so much of his time was taken up by talking with not just me, but dozens or hundreds of other people who wanted to talk with him. So I think, uh, you know, for some of our audience who would, you know, who are thinking or considering, re- you know, buying the book and reading it or whatever, um, obviously it comes from, like you were saying before about him, you know, being a very, you know, anarchist or just anarcho-capitalist, you know, stance or leanings, or whatever. So, you know, for someone who's more on like the conservative side who, you know, if you, you know, they're not, um, they're very aware in terms of, you know, the, the anti-police, you know, sentiment yeah. or whatever, you know, they're, they're very young mm-hmm. about the police and the military, you know, which is fine. Um, but, you know, with someone who is like that or if, of that ilk and you give them that book, do you think not necessarily like, you know, they're going to be convinced, oh, well, everything make them, you know, more aware or like open their mind up. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. I, th- I think it will, but and I think there'll be less reaction against because the book is organized chronologically. So it starts with 9-11 and then it moves in. And he didn't really focus on the police for a couple of years. So you've got this broad range of issues that he's already talked about. And the average I don't know, conservative constitutionalist, whatever you, you want you want to say he's 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 not going to convince too many leftists. I mean, there there will be some who are anti-war that will see all of his anti-war writings and say, "Wow, this is good." Or civil civil liberties stuff where he talks about the Bush administration and torture. But for the most part, I think it it is more geared to where he was coming from. Uh, he's he came from more of a conservative viewpoint, and you can see even though. His earliest pieces don't preclude strong libertarian views. They hint at, okay, I have this, this conservative bias at first, and then less and less of it as, as time goes on. And that, not to say that he was a libertine, ever became a libertine libertarian. He you know, was personally very conservative, converted to, you know, he, he changed his religion to you know, sort of a non-denominational Christian after a number of years, he he was lived a very conservative life personally. But as far as his political philosophy, it, it became more and more uh, stridently liber- libertarian as time went on. I was actually surprised. I mean, I thought when he first put up his blog post and it said he was a Christian libertarian, I thought, really, you've gone all the way to being a libertarian? And I didn't, I didn't really think about it, but we were already there. Uh, we we were our views didn't really diverge from libertarianism, maybe in theory in 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 a, in a couple of instances. I, I so we were already there anyway. Uh, in some respects, I, I'm a libertarian than a lot of libertarians. I, a lot of libertarians are very strong for border controls, and and I'm not. So I don't have a problem if someone wants to call me a libertarian. Uh, but Will, he, he, as soon as he separated from the New American in 2006, he, he called himself a libertarian and, and never stopped. And he trended toward, I don't think he ever said, I am an anarcho-capitalist, I think this should be no state. But 
he was he wanted to go in that direction. He made it very clear that he did want to go in that direction. He just didn't want to put that label on it, maybe to, to I guess not scare away people, you know, because I know some people who, who say they're anarchists, but they want to use that label because, you know, oh, I'm an anarchist. Well, you know, I don't want to talk to you because, you know, you know. Well, there's, I mean, especially if you, if you come out of the John Birch Society where anarchy was sort of a stepping stone to communism. Like, it was sort of, oh, well, who are anarchists? Well, a hundred years ago, they were bomb throwers or whatever that, that he didn't, I, th I think there was a little initial hesitation to use the term because of where he had been and not you know a philosophical opposition to the anarcho-capitalist uh, people that he had great affinity for uh, he he wrote frequently for lewrockwell.com and, and other websites of, of, of the same caliber in fact a lot of the pieces in the in the book are from are reprinted from lewrockwell.com or LRC, I guess it's LRC now, but you know, I'm an old guy. Old, I, I'm older than I look, so it keeps to the old uh, old labels. But it, it's uh, you know, he's the, uh, the 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 pieces. There's I think 65 different pieces in the book. It's about 300 and about 300 pages, and so they're most of them are short. You're, you're talking about you know, five minute read for most of them. There's a few longer ones, but uh, it's, it, it goes from, yeah, they're as long as he wanted them to be. They, hmm. You know, whatever it took to, to make the, the point, if it was, if it was really short, it was very short. If, if there had to be longer, that's, that's what it would be. But he was, uh, he was an American original. I've, I've compared him, to, they're the only people I can think of who can think through to the root of a problem and then come out with a completely organized paragraph that addresses all of the points and probably all of the likely objections. I, I can only think of a handful of people in history that would do that on the spot. H.L. Mencken was great at that. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was great at it, but I, I, and Will Gray was great at it. And I can't think of anyone else that would just like that and the closest we have now is someone like tom woods i think he's he's you know he's he's really good at that uh but i've never seen him off the cuff so i i don't know if he's I mean, will Grigg would would say something and i would think well why did he say that and i'd have to go and think about it for about 10 minutes and he had thought through all of the processes and i said oh okay i, I get where he's coming from so it, it wasn't even just the print. It was it, that mind was was so active and so quick. All right. Well, um, Tom, I really appreciate you coming on to you know kind of give a, a little overview of the book and to have a um, you know this lasting uh, memory of him and, and and all the work you know into that one book. So you know you know, we all really appreciate it, especially for the, you know, the Liberty movement, you know, who really appreciated his work or, or even who would never knew of his work like us, you know, now here we are introducing it to, you know, new people who, you know, don't, you know, never knew who uh, Will Grigg, you know, was, and now they can read this book and be like, okay, I, I know who he is now, you know, so, um, you know, I really appreciate it. And uh, just also want to say that um, if you buy the book from Amazon or even the Libertarian Institute or pretty much anywhere you can buy the book, uh, all the proceeds go to his family, I, I believe, correct? 
Yeah, that's correct. And that's important. I don't get a dime, and Scott Horton of the Libertarian Institute, the publisher, doesn't get a dime. Nobody's getting any money except it goes directly to the family. And we'll have six kids and, and a wife, so we want to do what we can to, to provide for them. But as, uh, as Tom Wood said on his show last week, don't do it for them. Do it for yourself. You want to read this book. It, it, you will, yeah, you'll do a good thing, but it, you, when, you, when you pick it up and, and read a couple of the essays, you want to keep going and, and read them all for sure. Yeah, so, well, with that, uh, again, thank you so much for um, sharing some insight and some stories about Will. And, um, like, you know, like he said, you know, do it for yourself. Buy this book. And, you know, of course, all the proceeds go to his family. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think that's it. So, again, thank you so much, Tom. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you very much, Shane and uh, Nico. Thank you. All right. Have a nice night, everyone. Now you know what's happening. Thanks for listening. If you want to support the show, go to hapasupremacy.com and follow our social media. Have a great day.